We're in the season of Epiphany, and Epiphany celebrates Christ being revealed as the light of the world. And Epiphany calls on us as the church to be the light of Christ in the world. To be the light of Christ, we have to constantly heed the challenges that come to us from the good news about Jesus. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is always issuing challenges to us, confronting us about sin and about evil and calling us into life. Now, Mark immediately presents a challenge between the good news of Jesus Christ and the world of his day when he starts his gospel. So the word that he uses to describe his story of Jesus, gospel, or good news, it was an, a word that was already claimed for only one purpose. You only used it to describe a king who brought a war to end. So a king would bring a war to end, and then he would invite the foreigners that he was uh, you know, claiming as slaves, he would invite them to surrender to him and pledge complete allegiance to him and so that they could be saved from immediate and total destruction. Wouldn't that be good news? Wouldn't you love that king? Now, also, part of this good news is that time would be reordered around the reign of such a king. So in Jesus's day, the beginning of the annual calendar was based on the birthday of Caesar Augustus. He came into power and they changed the calendar around the day that he was born. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, read one of their city walls. So Mark's very first words in that context, in that light, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. These words issued a challenge what many people believed. Questions would naturally arise from this. Who is this new king, Jesus Christ? And what war is he saving us from? Why should we change our calendar to honor him as king? Now, the good news of Jesus Christ always speaks into our world. I haven't preached in a few weeks, but there have been a couple of things that have happened in that time period. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always speaking into our world. And one of the good questions that we should always be asking when there's a major event in our lives or in the world around us is, what does the good news of Jesus have to say here? One thing that you can count on is that it will always come with a challenge to us. To all of us, I want to mention a couple ways the good news about Jesus really challenges us today. One way that it challenges us is the good news of Jesus always calls us to continual repentance. It always calls us to continual repentance. It's not a one and done. It is ongoing to admit we've been wrong, to turn around and go the other direction. 
This is the invitation into the kingdom of God. This is Jesus's political rallying slogan. Repent and believe in the good news. Can you imagine if one of our political, major political parties called their own to repentance as the start of their conference? I bet some of you have some ideas of where they could start. <laughs> different ones. Today's culture is built on blaming. It's always someone else. Every time one group does something heinous, the supporters of that political side say, well, what about when your side did that? Remember? And a lot of this, us, sadly, we imitate this behavior in our own personal lives. We're all concerned that if we don't defend ourselves against attacks, no one else will. So even in our personal relationships, we develop a defensive wall to others. We're slow to really apologize because that means we lose a part of ourselves. We give up ground that we didn't even have in the first place. This is what's so powerful about the good news of Jesus Christ in our world. It does not matter who you are or how wrong you've been. The first thing you must do is repent. John Hay sent me a sermon this past week from the church that he and Nancy attended when they lived in Colorado Springs International Anglican Church. And the pastor gave a great illustration of the way that Jesus called everyone to repent in his own day. Now, of course, Jesus, in this call of repentance, he was certainly calling individuals to repent of their personal failures. But in Jesus's day, there were several groups who were all responding differently to the pressure that was being exerted, exerted on Israel. Israel was constantly losing ground to the empire of Rome. And this created these different factions, political parties, if you will, who are all responding in different ways. So one party was the Sadducees. You hear about them in the Gospels. And the Sadducees determined to stop trying to fight Rome. To stop trying to fight. Instead, they decided to accommodate and try to work within the structures. And they became very wealthy and prestigious because of this. There were also the Pharisees. The Pharisees could not imagine accommodating to Rome. They were the religious conservatives, and they wanted to lead Israel into a, a revival that would restore people's love and devotion to God, as well as Israel's status in the world. Israel was supposed to be a light for the nations, and so the Pharisees were trying to conjure up this memory of when they were to be that for the nations. But there were two other more fringe groups. One was called the Essenes. The Essenes decided that the evil was simply too great. They retreated to the desert to get away from it all. And John the Baptist actually seems to have had some commonality with, the, with this group. You read about John the Baptist and then you read of being in the um, desert and baptizing, calling to repentance. And it sounds a lot like the, what we know about this group called the Essenes. They believed that God would return, and when he did, he would use them to begin to restore righteousness to Israel. 
Now there was one other group, and this group was called the Zealots. Jesus had at least one of these among his disciples, Simon the Zealot. These were Israelites who vowed to fight their way out of Rome's oppression and restore Israel's birthright as a nation. They were going to overthrow their oppressors, and they were going to become what God had always promised they would be. Now, when Jesus begins proclaiming the kingdom, the natural question was, in, in that context, which group will he align with? Which group will Jesus use to introduce his kingdom? And the answer is, none of them. Instead, Jesus calls all of them in different ways to repentance. He skewers the Roman leaders that the Sadducees had aligned with. For the, he skewers them for their immorality, their compromise. He skewers the Pharisees for their pride and hypocrisy, using religion as a tool for their own advancement, but also to oppress others, to make themselves feel better to some extent. And even though Jesus resonated with the Essenes for their condemnation of evil, Jesus teaches that you cannot simply run away from evil. It lives inside of everyone, including you and me. The Essenes didn't acknowledge that wherever they went, they were going to take the evil with them, even in the desert. And the Zealots, well, Jesus called them instead to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek. You see, when Jews heard anything about enemies, they knew that meant Rome. So Jesus called all of them to repentance. And do you know what this means for us? It means that without Jesus, we can't win. We cannot. I realize there are lots of people who were relieved and happy about this past week. The blood pressure just kind of went down. I get it. And, and honestly, I mean, just a little bit of a sigh. I can, I can dig some slam poetry at the inauguration. I mean, come on. Really? And calls for unity? I get it. I hate to put a needle in the balloon so soon. But whatever groups or views you align with in the world, even if it's a view like the Essenes that tries to pull back and check out, Jesus will call you to repentance, to himself. He is the only way, the only way to the kingdom of God. And this is not bad news. Church, in a culture that is so bent on canceling and blaming each other, the best place that we can be is together in repentance. Repentance for our own lack of holiness and devotion. This is what the Church of Uganda did so beautifully in this moment. What happened was awful, and what they did immediately is call for repentance. We need to repent for our own lukewarmness toward God, His kingdom, and His church. For our own obsessions with things that are temporal and matter much less than the kingdom of God. The church should not be the people getting in Facebook debates. Church of the Lamb, don't go there. 
Judgment begins with the household of God, says 1 Peter. Jesus begins by calling his own people to repentance. He doesn't go to pagan nations and call them to follow Yahweh. He goes first to the house of Israel, his own people, and says, repent of your folly and follow me. Jesus first calls the church to repentance. Now, this is one way that the good news of Jesus challenges us in our world. It calls all of us to continual repentance. Repentance is the only way off the never-ending merry-go-round of judging and blaming others. The world is so wearisome in this way. It's always someone else's fault. What if we just said stop and let's all repent? Jesus lived a holy, righteous life, but he still suffered injustice and blame. Think about that. And he did that to take on all of our real sin and folly. So now we can all repent without the fear that we will lose ground in the process. When we repent, here's the beauty, we actually gain ground. We gain freedom with God. And often, though admittedly it's not always, often we gain ground with others too. The good news of Jesus calls all of us to a continual repentance. And here's just one more way that the good news of Jesus challenges us in our world. The good news of Jesus calls us to be saints and martyrs. It calls us to be saints and martyrs. My friend, uh, Father Ben, is a pastor at an Anglican church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Christ Church. And I spent some time with him while I was away. And something he says a lot about his work is that he believes his job as a pastor is to form saints and martyrs. Now that sounds intense, but I think he's right. In calling his first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, Jesus sets them apart for himself. Follow me, he says. He's setting them apart for himself. To be a saint means to be set apart for God. Imperfect as they are and as they will be, they're going to learn to confess their folly, their sins. They're going to learn to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and live as ambassadors of Jesus. They're going to learn to be saints. Saints are not perfect people. They're people who are set aside for God. This is why Paul can call all the Christians he writes to saints, even the ones who are known to be the worst, his least favorite ones, he can call saints. First Corinthians, who Ashlyn read for us, he, those are saints, he calls them, and boy, they're awful to him. To be a saint means that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. You seek to grow in relationship with him and serve him in the power of his spirit. Jesus calls you and me to be set apart for service to him. But in calling us to be saints, he also calls us to be martyrs. There's a passing mention made in our passage of John the Baptist. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. I want you to know those very few words, those just few words after John was arrested are very important words in our passage. They're signaling something. It's ironic, isn't it? Jesus starts proclaiming a kingdom when his forerunner has just been arrested for proclaiming the same kingdom. 
And we know what comes of John's time in prison. He loses his life because someone held a grudge from when he called them out (laughs) for their evil. John's end here foreshadows what will happen to Jesus. You should know from the very beginning of Mark's gospel where this is going, what kind of kingdom this will be. We're being taught early in the story of Jesus to understand that this is often the way it will go with following him. It will land you in places you'd rather not go. Similar ends are going to come to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, though they have no idea about that yet. They're going to spend much time with Jesus being prepared for those trials when they do come. Jesus prepares his people to be saints and martyrs. You and I need to make sure that we are not being naive or soft about our own calling to be saints and martyrs ourselves. We're not accustomed in our culture to being challenged for what we believe. But more and more, there are families who are experiencing pain because of the disagreements that are developing over issues related to faith and morality. And when these disagreements arise, especially close to home between parents and children, or in close friendships, or at work with coworkers, it can be so extremely painful. Just being conscientious, we can begin to question whether our convictions really are right or whether they're harsh. I can only imagine whether John the Baptist had second thoughts about what he said to Herod related to his adultery while he was in his prison cell, awaiting his execution. We need the community of saints more than ever in these kinds of moments, a group of people who can remind us of God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. You know, the idea of martyrdom, it it has a bit of a romantic and heroic flair to it in our culture. We lift up these people. But Christian martyrdom, is it's not about being a hero. It's not. And it's not about you being a jerk to people because of their convictions that are different from yours either. To be a saint and a martyr means that your life is set apart for Jesus Christ. He has loved you and me. He's redeemed us. He is more true than anything else in the world. So in response, we've given him everything. So martyrdom, the giving of one's life, is only the natural end of that kind of devotion. How can I betray the Lord Jesus Christ? He's given me everything. That's the attitude of being a saint and a martyr. All of this is difficult for the world to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ calls us to be saints and martyrs, that we can't choose another way. But the faithfulness of the church to Christ has always been one of the ways that the church has held up the light of Christ in the darkness of the world. Faithfulness of the church to Christ to this degree, even being a martyr. So to be the light of Christ, church, 
we have to heed the challenge of Christ's good news. The good news calls us to repent and believe in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And the good news calls us to be saints and martyrs, to give our lives for the one who gave himself for us. And here is the most beautiful part of these passages that were read this morning to me. When Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, these first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, he says, follow me. In other words, what it looks like to be a Christian is it means to be in relationship with Christ. Be close to someone who loves you more than you have ever been loved, who's forgiven you of more than you can even imagine. It's relationship. And then in the first Corinthians passage that Ashlyn read for us, uh, at the end of that passage, there is this little phrase, whatever status you were in where God called you, remain there. And then there are two words, with God. So whatever state you are in, in life, whatever burden God has called you to bear, you you don't bear any burden alone. You don't live your life alone. You live your life in God, with Christ, who loved you, who loved you and gave himself for you. And because of that, you can give your life back to God. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.